Welcome to Connected, a podcast with Jess. That's me. Connections are the secret to a whole life. Recognizing the connections between us and within us, mind, body, and soul, reveals the fullest potential of our humanity. Join me as I discover what connects us to each other and to ourselves. Your mind, body, and soul were not meant to live disconnected from each other. Putting all the beautiful parts of you into one breathtakingly whole experience is what you deserve. As a life coach, I work to support your story. Together, we can set free the story of you. I bring guests onto my show so that you can hear powerful stories of other women all across the world. I want you to see how profoundly important living and telling stories is. You can find out more about working with me on my website at jessicatravis.com. I hope to hear from you soon. Today on the Connected Podcast, I have a very special um, guest here today, um, my daughter, Michaela Travis. Um, for the sake of this podcast and my normal life with her, I call her Kaylee, um, but she goes by Michaela to the rest of the world. So, But today you'll hear me refer to her as Kaylee. Um, she has recently been through quite a story, so we thought we would sit down and actually talk it out and record it and see what happened. So welcome, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. <laughs> um, you're not used to being on this side of the mic. No. <laughs> so, um, so we're going to just, uh, I'm going to just treat this like one of my normal podcasts in terms of how we get started. And um, I'm going to start with a question I ask every one of my guests, and that is, Kaylee, who are you? <laughs> it's a loaded question. Yeah. I don't know where to start with that. <laughs> it's whatever you want to tell us of who um, you are. It's not your whole story, but yeah. when I ask you, who are you? What comes to mind? Um, well, I am still figuring that out, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm... Trying to, I don't know. <laughs> well, so tell us a little bit about just some of the basics about you. Um, how old you are, what you do for a job, um, maybe what you're, you know, maybe some things that you look forward to being able to do or things you just enjoy in life. Um, things that just describe who you are and where you're at in life right now. So I am 24. Jeez, I almost just said the wrong age. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. We don't, don't even know anymore. Um, I'm 24 years old. I work at a pharmaceutical manufacturing company. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm in the customer service department, so I get to work from home now because of COVID. And I love it. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm working, I obviously haven't been working for a while, but um, yeah, I like to sing, which I haven't oh, done yeah. in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hoping to get back into that. Um, yeah, I'm excited to start doing things I love again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love being outside and hiking and camping and yeah. Yeah. Well, and your story, um, when we were talking earlier, where do we start with this? We, um, I mean, there's one part of it where dad and I talked about um, recent events, um, particularly around your hospital visits. Um, but there's, there's more to your story um, than what him and I experienced. And so we kind of thought it'd be good to sit down and talk about that and at whatever capacity that you want to. You told me the other day that uh, you started to just record on your phone um, a video of you telling your story and that you felt like it needed to happen. And so we decided, let's, let's do this. Let's see if this is a good space for you. Um, because that's what I do here on this podcast is I tell stories of women from all over the world and uh, let them share the magic of who they are, the resilience of who they are, the story that they have. So if we were to tell your story today, where would you want to start with that? And I'm not talking about, okay, I was born on this day. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the part that um, matters to you right now, because we know there's a, there's a whole lot of story. You and I could sit here and talk forever about yeah. life. But, um, but what is the story that you want to tell today, and particularly where, where does it start for you? So I think just in terms of, you know, having gastric bypass and all of that, I think it's really important to start, you know, a little bit of right after high school. Yeah, a little bit further back. Yeah. Because you didn't get to gastric bypass surgery without a sequence of events oh, yeah. getting you there. And so you feel like going back a little bit to um, right out of high school kind of matters to where we landed these last, this last probably, what, seven, eight weeks? I think so, because I think, um, you know, a lot of people haven't seen me in years yeah. <laughs> and don't really know, like, how I gained weight in the process, and I think that's really important. So tell me, when you finished high school, what were the things that you were loving in life that you, you loved to do that were passions for you? Um, because I think that's important to, mm-hmm. for people to understand how things change direction for you and yeah. how significant that change in direction was for you. So when I graduated, I think my favorite things to do, I was like never home because I <laughs> was outside all the time. Yeah. I was always trying to find people to go on hikes with. Um, I was at the lake pretty much any time I wasn't working. Um, you know, like road trips here and there. Anything I could do to be outside and all I wanted to do was I didn't do much traveling, but mm-hmm. when I could I would travel to camp, stuff like that. So those were the biggest things for me that I just absolutely loved. And and being active. Like yeah. I still enjoyed running. I think 
my half marathon I ran was like right before I graduated and you know all those things so lots of activity and just enjoying being outside and with people that was a big one and you had a pretty tight group of um friends from um uh choir Mm -hmm. um so you were you were having a lot of fun doing that you guys were doing some traveling won lots of awards yep um so that was a big part of your personal identity was was song was was singing and these people that you sang with were really important to you too yeah definitely yeah so uh you graduate you're the first grandkid to graduate in the family um the first kid in our family to graduate. Um, and so what next? Well, I started going to classes at Eastern Washington University um, and didn't last long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know. Pretty much as soon as I graduated, things kind of took a turn for the worst. <laughs> yeah. And it got pretty dark pretty fast. Yeah. I remember, um, you know, you changing very quickly to a place where we were like, we didn't quite know how to connect, uh, like the, in the ways that we used to be able to connect as a family. Yeah. And Sydney was still in high school, so she was kind of doing her thing. But um, we also knew there was a big adjustment when somebody's no longer in mm-hmm. high school and now in college. And, you know, we were having that, that change, but... Um, And you were kind of back and forth from living with us and sharing apartments with people, kind of trying to move out on your own in that way. And um, but there was a big shift for all of us um, in how to navigate um, relationship with you, because, like you said, just got dark really fast. And um, I do remember somewhere in there in that time, maybe that's jumping the gun a little bit. You were still trying to sing. That was mm-hmm. still something you were holding on to in the midst of a really hard time. Yeah, I was still trying to make covers as often as I could. I remember when I went to my audition for The Voice, that was at probably the start of one of the darkest points of things mm. for me. Um, I was getting out of bad situations and into other bad situations. Um, and I just remember feeling like, when you and I went to Chicago, mm-hmm. that was like a like a breath of fresh air. I felt like I could breathe because I could just escape. And I mm-hmm. think that's what music did for me. Yeah. It just gave me a place to just focus on something that wasn't, you know, stressful and dark. <laughs> yeah. I, I do remember a shift in you singing. Your dad and I used to talk about when you were in high school, um, you had some really beautiful opportunities in high school. Mm-hmm. We went to Carnegie Hall and got to sing there. And um, then, then halfway through high school, we moved to Spokane, where you got to be in a, a pretty prestigious um, uh, choir here in the state of Washington. And so one thing that we used to talk about was that as beautiful as your voice was, it sort of lacked the life experience behind it to mm-hmm. to pull something different through in the songs that you sang. That's just yeah. that deeper level of um, emotion or, or life experience. So one thing we did start to see change during this really dark time was that shift. Mm-hmm. 
that when you did sing, it pulled from a whole nother space of it was is very connected with emotionally where you were at. And so we were seeing that kind of play out while you were trying to hold on, right? Trying to hold on to it. Yeah, I really think, um, you know, there, there's covers that I posted and there's a lot of covers that I didn't ever post. Mm. Um, and I feel like just making those covers and spending the time just sitting in like singing and feeling the emotion in the words of the songs and all of that yeah. was one of the most important things in getting me through that period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because it gave me an outlet where, you know, I had friends that would come and go and I didn't feel very solid in anything, but I felt like when I sang these covers, I could just like unload, just yeah. get it all out and nobody was going to judge me. And I could get away with posting covers and having emotion behind them and people not, you know, not feeling like I was burdening people by like talking to them about what was going on and, you know, all of that. So I think it was a really good outlet for me. So in a way, it was sort of like you got to tell your story without actually telling your story. Yeah. What you were going through at the time. Mm -hmm. That's that's pretty powerful. Um, so we get back from Chicago and... Um, you didn't make it on The Voice, which we just think is ridiculous. But <laughs> hey, you know, that's the mom in me, I guess. Um, but you had a lot of people behind you and supporting you. In fact, people had helped pay for you to even go and do mm -hmm. this audition in Chicago. So um, so where did life go f after that? You said it got, <sighs> that was kind of the point where yeah. it got really dark afterwards. Um, well, after that... I started partying a lot. So that was the majority of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I was still technically enrolled in school, but I wasn't doing well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a lot of, there was a lot that I was dealing with mentally and mm -hmm. um, I couldn't handle school on top of that. Yeah. I would try and then I'd just not go to school, you know. I would I would even go out because um, Eastern Washington University, for anyone who doesn't know, is in Cheney. And mm -hmm. that's about, I don't know, like a 25-minute, 30-minute yeah. drive. Maybe, yeah. So I used to have to take the bus because I didn't have a car. So I had friends that lived in the dorms out there. So occasionally, to force myself to go to class, I would go and I would stay out in the dorms um, with my friends. And I just – and I had – like one specific really good friend that I would stay with all the time. And she was just incredible. And, um, I, it worked for a while. And then I just started sleeping till one o'clock in the afternoon and missing my classes. And it was, it turned into partying to kind of cope with what was going on. Um, lots of drinking and staying out late and all of that. Um, and Eventually, I flunked. I couldn't go to school anymore. Mm -hmm. Lost my financial aid and had to find a job and kind of figure it out from there because it just wasn't an option anymore. Yeah. And I think during that time, we were hearing from you less and less. Yep. And um, there was, I remember, a period of time where, well, there was a couple of things. You would 
you would come over to the house and you would walk in and it was like I couldn't really recognize you. Mm -hmm. I saw you there. You looked like my Kaylee, but it's like I didn't recognize your essence anymore. Yep. And it was it was really kind of scary um, mm-hmm. to feel that way as a mom. And I remember nights where I would scroll through social media just hoping I saw you post something. Yeah. I didn't even care what it was. It just meant you were there. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't really know where you were sometimes, where you were staying. Um, we tried to get you to stay with us sometimes. That didn't always work. You know, it was such a a really dark time for you and for us, but mm-hmm. really for you. And it was so hard because we didn't feel like we could we could reach you during that time. Yeah. And that went on for let's see, that started that started in 2016. So that went on um just like that. Pretty much pretty steady like that and uh, is mm-hmm. how I feel. Right, right. For about a year. And then yeah. it got a lot worse. Um, I think I got so used to just staying away (laughs) yeah, and doing my own thing. And I got so sucked into partying that it just did not do good things for us, our relationships. And yeah, I know I would come home and I'd just go straight to my room. Yeah. If I was living here, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. So. Well, that was, it was hard because we were. You know, Sydney was still in high school, and we're like, we still have to kind of have a normal life here. And mm-hmm. you were not living anything close to a normal life, and it not was not at all. Um, it was disruptive for all of us, but it was also the normalcy was disruptive for you because it's you were fighting against that so hard. I feel like I just wanted to. I, I feel like I just wanted to be my own person so bad, but like nobody was doing anything to. Uh, to take that away from me, but I felt like everybody was. Yeah. yeah. So I was just like, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And anybody who says anything about it, I'll just not talk to them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, I think that's what it came down to. Yeah. So, so you, you say it got really, it got even darker. Um, is there any part of that you want to talk about? Yeah. So, um, I've been somewhat open with people about this, you know, pretty much all of my friends know this about me um but in 2017 early 2017 I started I got involved in drugs so um it wasn't like it was one specific thing do you want me to say what it was is that okay to say (laughs) it's okay to say whatever you want to say but you Um, don't have to say anything you don't want to either yeah so I got addicted to cocaine and um and pills was another big one for me mm-hmm. uh you know hydros percocets mm-hmm. pretty much anything i could get my hands on i was using a lot i wasn't using so much in the first couple months of the year um but then you know trauma yeah <laughs> and it got really bad yeah and you know, couldn't live here doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Did you guys like? Um, 
I, I thought I was really good at hiding it, but I don't know that I actually was. <laughs> I think we, we knew to the extent of saying we know that this is bad and she's in trouble, but we don't know exactly the details of what that was. Um, we knew it was bad enough that when you weren't staying here, we changed the codes on the house because we were afraid that if drugs were involved, like we were suspecting, that um, that things things could be stolen from our house, whether mm -hmm. by you or by somebody else that you knew. Um, we didn't trust that you could keep us, our our home and our family safe yeah. any longer. So we put parameters around saying, you're always welcome here, but we weren't giving you access to our home mm -hmm. or uh, us without us being part of that. And um, mostly because we didn't want to be part of the fuel. If there was a drug yeah. issue, we didn't want you selling. I mean, because you sold everything. Like anything that you owned, you were selling, right? Which is like, I think back on that and it's just devastating now. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, the things that I lost in that time. Yeah. Just devastating. I had so much, so many things that just were so important to me. Um, and they're just gone. <laughs> yeah. And I did it without even thinking twice because, you know, I could barely hold a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, couldn't pay rent. I was staying kind of couch hopping with friends. Um, and it was at a point where, um, or it got to a point where nobody really had an issue with what I was doing because everybody was doing it. Mm -hmm. But I remember towards the end of the year, is when I had friends who were also doing all these things telling me I had to stop because I was going to die. Mm. And that, like, hit me. Really? <laughs> because, I mean, these were people who were also involved in partying and stuff like that, and they were like, you're doing way too much. Yeah. Like, you are not okay. It got to a point where I wasn't just doing drugs when I was partying. I was doing drugs when I was by myself, you know? Um, and, you know, you can't function at work on yeah. drugs. <laughs> you shouldn't. <laughs> and I don't know. There was a lot, of, a lot of really scary times during that. I got myself into a lot of really bad situations, hanging out with people I shouldn't have been hanging out with. Yeah. You know, I would just disappear. I remember I took off and went out of town for like two weeks one time. And everybody was like, well, where did you go? Because I didn't yeah. tell anyone. <laughs> like, um, just scary stuff like that. And I was missing out on, you know, I had friends, probably my closest friends, who did not use drugs. And they were going, like, I know people were dealing with some pretty hard stuff. And I was missing out on those things and not able to be there for my friends because yeah. I was so high all the time. Yeah. A few of your friends uh, reached out to us mm -hmm. and they're like, Kaylee's in trouble. Or they would say, Michaela <laughs> is in trouble. Um, you know, it's, re it's really bad. You need, and, and it was an incredibly helpless feeling as a, as a parent of an adult child, because if we could find you. Yeah, because you didn't even know where mm -hmm. I was. Um, you absolutely were not letting us be involved in any of that. No. And um, so dad and I decided um, we, you know, we talked to a close friend of ours who had a son in the same situation or had had in the past. And um, we decided after 
some conversation there that the one thing we always wanted you to know was that you were loved and you were always welcome, that you were not asked to not be part of our family, and uh, that somehow we could get to the other side of this with you knowing that you were just loved. Yeah. Um, because there just wasn't something tangible that we could find that we could do. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just incredibly hard to watch your child um, in so much pain. And you, I know this isn't something you want to go into, but there were some very specific situ, mm-hmm. s- uh, sorry, specific circumstances that um, encouraged this um, yeah. desire to cover up pain, right? Oh my gosh, yeah. There was so much pain. And I remember trying therapy mm-hmm. and it just not feeling like it was working because I was still in the middle of all of it. Yeah. And so things would continue to happen and build and build. And I was like, well, this therapy is not doing anything for me mm-hmm. because I'm still in danger. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. So I remember a time where when my story started with this whole tumor thing, mm-hmm. we originally thought it was MS. We didn't yep. know about a tumor. And I remember we had both you guys come over and you showed up, which was a surprise. Yeah. And we said, we need to talk about this. We don't know what's ahead, but we want you guys to now be in the loop that something's wrong. Um, and we have to start uh, having these conversations, you know, because things could be moving pretty quickly as far as what we needed to do for my health condition. And, and I remember sitting there and you just kind of looked a bit stone-faced. Um, not, not literally stoned face. Maybe you were, but I wasn't, I promise. Okay. <laughs> I didn't mean it for to sound like that, but just, um, very unemotional about it. And, and like I said, at the time we didn't know it was a tumor. We just knew that there was something wrong and we were looking into it could possibly be MS, which was a huge game changer if that had been the diagnosis. And, um, and, uh, you just kind of sat there. I don't know. I couldn't tell if you were just in shock. But then you got this phone call or text or something from a friend of a, that said a friend of theirs, somebody you... No, it was a friend of mine. Oh, okay. That was from in high a, school. That was in a car accident. Mm-hmm. And you just lost it. I mean, you were hysterical. And I remember sitting there going, okay, how, how do you go from no emotion about what's going on with me to... This incredibly um, strong response with that. And we just knew that you, at that moment, that the capacity for like a normal response or engagement to any, any of this was, one, was way too much to ask, but two, it was showing us how dark things had gotten for you. Yeah, I think, yes. But not only that, I don't think I fully understand the gravity of the situation. Yeah. Um, like I knew something was wrong. And as much as I wasn't showing it, it was making me freak out a little bit. But at the same time, right before you started talking is when I had gotten hints that my friend had died. Gotcha. So I wasn't, I wasn't sure yet. And so you were talking and you were telling me what was going on. And at the same time, I was like, is my friend dead? Gotcha. And I, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. it, you had gone through this period of time where multiple 
things. Tadna used to say, can this girl take one more devastating blow? You had multiple people that you knew that had died um, from all different things. Like nothing was ever the same, but you had multiple people um, that you knew had died. You had had a, had seen an, a horrific thing at a park one night. I remember um, uh, there was a, you, yes. you found somebody in the park that had committed suicide. Yep. And that was a very haunting story all on its own. Um, you had a lot of things that were just the, the things that you were telling us at the time that were happening that I'm like, this is just like you're getting pummeled with one travesty after another. And we realized then how difficult it was going to be for you to grasp this idea that I had a tumor. Like when we finally moved to that stage, we're like, how is she going to handle this? I think I had kind of become numb to -hmm. everything because not only was I using drugs to kind of literally numb all of it, um, but... It was like all these crazy and horrible things would just keep happening. And I just, after a while, just went, okay, like there's another one. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do with that when it's just like every other day, something really horrible happens? Um, Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot. (laughs) But I do know once I started to realize that I had a problem and was toying with the idea of getting clean, that's when it started to hit me what was actually going on with you. Mm. And I think that definitely is one of those things that pulled me out of it because I knew I had to be there and Mm. I knew that if I continued with drugs, I couldn't be there. So what did you do? Well, in November of 2017, I had a friend who had something horrible happen. And I was supposed to be with that friend to help deal with the pain. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I missed it because I was so high. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting there and... I remember I texted one of my friends from McCall, who I Mm. um, hadn't seen in a really long time, but we still keep in touch. And I said, this is what's going on. I don't know what to do. (laughs) And, um, And she talked to me for a while, and we, she helped me to come to the decision that I needed to get clean. Mm. Um, And I made, I, I think in order to get clean, I had to make the decision on my own. I couldn't have anyone tell me that I needed to get clean or anything like that. It had to to be my decision. So I did, and I quit cold turkey, which was a terrible decision. I probably should have gone to rehab. Um, 
because, I mean, the nightmares, the withdrawals, it was awful for a while. Yeah. Um, and then... And then I was queen. <laughs> and it was weird. It was the weirdest transition. Going from being high constantly to never being intoxicated. <laughs> I mean, I still occasionally will like have a drink and stuff like that. Um, but I do not touch drugs. Yeah. And anyone who I know who does, I've stopped talking to, stopped spending time with. I've lost a lot of relationships over it. Um, but the people that are still in my life know that that is not something that I'm okay with and yeah. I can't be around it. And that is when I started to gain weight so quickly. Why do you think that is? Um, Why is that well, a connection for you? We never really figured it out, but the doctors think that um, basically I was doing so many drugs that it destroyed my metabolism mm. is what I've been told. Um, so I basically had no metabolism yeah. at all. <laughs> so then I would just eat and... Um, well, and when I was on drugs, I didn't eat that much. <laughs> yeah. You know, I didn't have much of an appetite and I was cow chopping. So, yeah. I mean, the money I did have went to gas and stuff like that. So I had a job and I started to get stable again and I met Dylan mm -hmm. and things settled down. And I started to eat. And then when you eat and don't have a metabolism, you yeah. just, and I'm, I don't mean like, you know, 20 pounds in a year. I mean, like, I think I gained a hundred pounds in less than a year. <laughs> it, it was very fast. It was so fast. I mean, it wasn't like, um, yeah, it was so fast that I think it took you off guard. Like mm -hmm. all, all of a sudden you couldn't do the things you used to do. It wasn't yeah. like slowly merging into it. It no. was it was very fast. It was very quick and it's almost like I was in denial about it too. Like I didn't really see it coming until one day I remember I got in the shower and I was like, Hold on a second. I look different. Like that mm -hmm. I mean, that's how sudden it was, was I was like I just hadn't even I couldn't even tell and then it was like one day it just hit me that, oh no. <laughs> yeah. This is happening. And I tried to do things to slow it down. Like I, you know, I tried to yeah. do some running and some walking and um, I was on my feet all day at work and, you know, all of that stuff. And then I started to kind of get extreme about things and nothing worked. I just could not stop gaining weight. Yeah. It was, it was hard to watch because everything that we had ever known for our own personal selves and in uh, losing weight or eating healthy um, activity, all of that, 
was just not something that was working for you. And, um, and it was, uh, I remember one day when you said, my ankles hurt so much. You used to walk back and forth from our house to your house. And then there got to be a point where you couldn't do that any longer, um, that it was too much on your ankles. And, um, well, and I remember that day because oh, I was walking was that the day home. That guy yep. you? Oh my gosh. I was walking home and I was literally crying because I was in so much pain. And some, like a car full of guys drives by and they just start yelling profanities at me, calling me fat and ugly. And I mean, and this was in my neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, we're literally I was not a even a mile I was a couple apart. blocks away from yeah. my house, like, and, oh, that was devastating. Yeah, I, re- I remember that was, that day very I didn't well. do it again after that. <laughs> no, and, and I remember how sad that was, that, that the power that they had to keep you from trying again. And, um, but, I, but I totally understood it at the same time. It was, it was devastating. Well, and I remember, too, the weight came on so fast that I would think about reconnecting with people. And then I'd have to, I, I would literally send these people a text and I'd be like, we haven't seen each other in a while. I have gained a lot of weight and I look very different. And it just killed me that I had to say that. And I probably didn't have to say that, you know, but I was so scared to see people that I hadn't seen in like literally five months like that's how short of a time span it was um and I mean that that's how quickly the weight came on I looked so different yeah and I was constantly buying new clothes because I didn't fit in my old clothes right and it was just the scariest thing because I was like am I is there something wrong with me like am I gonna die like yeah yeah and um and in the meantime, yeah. you were, you had a therapist you were working with, you were um, mm-hmm. going to doctors, dealing with, um, I was always at the doctors, always at the doctors. Um, you did in, in that time also have, um, some minor surgeries, carpal mm-hmm. tunnel. And, um, I know you had, you had had your tonsils out at the end of high school, I think. Um, but yep. it seemed like you had one, maybe two surgeries in there, but and I remember this was the first time, those minor surgeries were the first time, oh, yeah, that you uh, had to start putting some defining um, things into your medical chart with your doctor saying, I do not want pain meds. Yep. Um, and that was something that you, when you did have a procedure that, that was going to require pain medication, you were very specific that I only need, you know, to get through one day. Yeah, And then um, you always made sure that somebody else was in charge of your meds mm-hmm. and you didn't know where they were. Like you were protecting yourself every step of the way saying, I'm going to stay in control of this. Um, and you were very vulnerable with us and very vulnerable with Dylan and saying, this is what I need. And you would plan it out. Mm-hmm. And you were very specific of what you felt like you could or couldn't handle. Um, and... Uh, that was kind of how you did surgeries. Yeah. Uh, that was scary for me because I, you know, there's so many people out there with opinions about, um, you know, addicts taking medication after surgeries and stuff like that. And I was like, I just have to go through the motions and have a plan. I just have to do that. Yeah. Um, and I, 
I felt a lot of guilt that because I had to take pain medications, because I had a surgery, that that made me not clean anymore. Yeah. And so I had to get through that. Um, but I always asked the doctors to underprescribe. And they did. They were always really great about it, um, yeah. especially during carpal tunnel. Uh, you know, I always tried to stay um, with ibuprofen or Tylenol. That mm-hmm. was what I tried to use most often because I knew that those weren't going to be addictive for me. Right. So you spent, uh, before COVID hit, you were on this journey to figure out what you wanted to do next with your weight. Yeah. What options were available to you and how you wanted to uh, move forward with your health. What did you start doing? So for a while, I just tried to cut back on food, but that doesn't work <laughs> when you get to as heavy as I was, um, which, again, just kept going up. I didn't even hit my max until um, December of last year. So this mm. is all before I even hit my maximum weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I would try cutting carbs. I'd tried, um, there was a program called Optavia. I tried that one. Um, but you were taking in like 700 calories a day and I was like, this is crazy. And yeah. <laughs> I was complained about it every step of the I way. Know. We were like, oh, we're so over this yeah. with you. <laughs> and, um, now I look back and I'm like, I wish I could eat 700 calories a day. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I tried a few different things. Occasionally I would try walking and running, but it hurt so bad. And it's one of those things where it was like, I know it's supposed to hurt, but I was genuinely afraid that I was going to actually hurt myself, like pull muscles and things like that, which I was having a lot of issues with. I was using your guys's, uh, massage rollers, massages, all of that all the time because my muscles were in so much pain constantly. Yeah. So really working out at that period of time became not an option. Yeah. Um, because I was that heavy. <laughs> um and yeah, Optavia was the last one that I tried. And I had been thinking about gastric bypass, but I was like, I was so in the mindset of this is the easy way out. Mm-hmm. was my thought process and I was like everybody's going to judge me um because if I lose weight if, if you have gastric bypass you lose weight very quickly and people are going to wonder how I did it and if I tell them they're going to judge me you know mm, yeah and so I struggled with that for a long time and um yeah that was a really tough one for me but eventually it got to the point where I was like this is my last resort yeah. I have to do this. I have, you know, especially after Asher started getting older. Yeah. I was like, I cannot sit on the floor and play with him because if I do, I can't get back up. Yeah. Um, it was so hard for me to get off the floor. Well, and you didn't want to ever have to babysit him or be alone with him for a period of time where he needed a diaper change. Because I can't bend over that way. You couldn't do that. Yeah. So so what do you say to this? Because I know we live in a very um a progressive world right now in terms of body image and and there I'm not saying anything against um any of this conversation but I'm kind of wanting to take hear your take on it um where we're supposed to be happy um no matter where our body is at and that 
this idea of what our body looks like um, really isn't uh, the thing that we should be evaluating each other or evaluating ourselves on, which I don't disagree with that. Mm -hmm. But um, you still wanted change yep. somewhere in that. So how did that, that idea play out for you? What were you working out in your head with that? So I felt like I still had a lot of self-confidence. I thought you did too. Despite my weight. I yeah. would go buy a cute dress and I'd go out and have some drinks with my friends and go dancing and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And I was very confident in myself. Despite the way that I looked, I knew I was overweight, but I also knew that I, that doesn't make me unworthy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and yeah, I don't think that people should be, I mean, obviously everyone's going to judge everybody else and yeah. the way they look, but in my, where I was at, I was at the doctor constantly trying to figure out what caused me to gone to, to gain weight. There was nothing. Yeah. My blood tests came back normal. Um, everything suggested that I, even though I was overweight, I was completely healthy. Mm. Um, up until I got close to my max weight and then I became borderline pre-diabetic. Um, but even then they were like, yeah, no, it's not going to get any worse than this. I mean, you're, you're okay. <laughs> Um, but I made the decision to lose weight despite that because I wanted a better quality of life. Yeah. So even though technically I was like, you know, all my blood tests were healthy and all of that, I wanted to be able to go hiking again. I wanted to be able to go camping again and ride roller coasters. Oh my gosh. I tried to go to Silverwood at one point. Couldn't do that. <laughs> I was, I mean, my feet were destroyed by the end of the day, halfway through the day. And I rode one roller coaster. Like, and it was just devastating for me. Yeah. Um, but and I yeah. think I think one thing, even not not something you could find in the blood work, but it was becoming increasingly um difficult for you to move. Yes. Just movement in general. And so you were seeing your life kind of shut down a bit um because you were becoming confined by the weight that it was not allowing you to do not just the things you wanted to do but to even do some normal things you yeah. were you weren't able to be on your feet for very long mm -mm. you weren't able to move around reach for things tie shoes i mean like it was getting yeah. to a point where it was holding you back from living just the normal basic things on top of not being able to do the things that you loved to do and wanted to do again. So I remember a lot of a lot of times you guys would ask me to do things or my friends would ask me to do things. My very first question would always be, how long will I have to be on my feet? Mm -hmm. Because I could not be on my feet for very long. And um, walking distances, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I would waddle and I was extremely slow. It got to the point where I could no longer go grocery shopping because I was just so out of breath all the time. Yeah. And so I started doing grocery pickups and things like that. And it helped immensely. Um, I could not find shoes that would fit my feet. I don't know if my arches collapsed or what happened, but um, my foot became 
wide. And so like I have a pair of slides I bought at Walmart that are like knockoff Birks, Birkenstocks. It's, it, it's <laughs> they're, they're kind of like, they're uh, like Crocs meets Birkenstocks. <laughs> yeah. That's what they look like. But they were available in a wide shoe. So I did that. I bought a wide and I sized up. Yeah, because we were we were trying to get you into shoes at Fleet Feet, running shoes, and I couldn't wear any. And you couldn't. We could not get a size that worked for you, and I couldn't tie my shoes either. Because mm-hmm. um, so, you're not you're not a very tall person. You come no. from my my family. You come from me. I'm five foot three. <laughs> I know. So you start to put on weight, and it's like for that height, that your frame cannot only take it for so long, and. Um, yeah. For for a small foot, what six and a half, seven? Yeah. Um, to find wide shoes is just it doesn't work. You needed a size ten foot to get into the kind of shoes that exactly we could get to that width. Yeah. So for the last year, maybe a little bit longer than that, yeah. <laughs> I've been wearing these slides, and when mine break or run out or like stop working as well. Uh, wear down. That's the <laughs> words I'm looking for. I have to go buy new ones, and I'm always scared that they're not Gonna available anymore. Yeah. Um, but that's all I fit in. Yeah. So, and then I try to find a cute outfit or something. Can't because I just have these really ugly slides. <laughs> <laughs> but they're the only shoes that I could wear, and they morph to my feet and my arches, so they hurt the least amount. Yeah. So, that was a big one. But I can fit in some shoes now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, you decide to start researching gastric bypass and whether it was the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. What does that process look like? Because it is a very long process. It's very extensive. So luckily, I have really good insurance through my work. I think it would have been a lot more difficult without that. Basically, what you do is um, first, you have to get your primary care doctor on board. Mm -hmm. And Mine was. He was like, yes, I think this is a great idea for you, Um, especially considering you're having trouble moving and all of that. This would be a great fit for you. So I get the referral and then I go to the bariatric clinic um, and I have a consult. And at the consult, they decide, um, or wait, no, before that even, before the consult, you had to go to a class. Um, And this class basically talks about all the risks and you know, all that stuff. Well, this, I got scheduled for my class and then COVID hit and they shut the class down. So I waited. Uh, On top of all elective surgeries. Yes. They weren't taking any new patients, nothing. So instead of getting in in March for a surgery that should have been like November, December, I didn't even get in until August. Yeah. So luckily, they ended up switching the class to be like an online video. You just watch this video and then they set you up for your consult. So that's what I did. Watch the videos. Um, I think there were two. And then um, I had my consult with a doctor. And basically, they just went over like same thing primary care doctor did. Why do you want this surgery? Mm-hmm. Have you done any research? You know, all that kind of stuff. 
So they then decided that I'd be a good fit for this. So um, in order for insurance to cover the surgery, you have to be over a certain BMI um, with, called is it comorbidities? Is that what it's called? Like diabetes or, you know, oh, something yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but if you're over a certain BMI, like even higher than that, then you just automatically get covered basically. So that's where I was at. I didn't have comorbidities or anything like that. I think that's what it's called. Um, but I weighed so much that they were like, you don't need them. <laughs> um, from there, my insurance, every insurance is different, but my insurance required six months of meetings with dietitians. So every month, once a month, I would meet with either the dietitian or the nurse practitioner and we'd see where I was at. And basically I just had to maintain weight. So by the end of the six months, I had to be at the same weight that I was when I started. Okay. So when I started, I've played around with sharing this information, but I'm going to share it because I think it's important. Um, when I started, I was at 305 pounds. That's what I weighed in at, at my first weigh in. Um, so by the end of the six months, I needed to be at 305. Well, maintaining weight was extremely hard for me mm -hmm. um, because I was just putting on weight so fast. So by December, I got up to 319 pounds. Mm. And it seemed that these things were not really um, affecting the process at all, which was good because I was scared that if I w weighed in, that I'd weigh in and they'd like tell me, you yeah. can't do this now. <laughs> Um, but that didn't end up happening. And I think that also has to do with the fact that it was all virtual. So they weren't actually weighing me in. Gotcha. <laughs> they were just kind of asking me what my weight was. So it wasn't official. Um, but I remember by January, that was supposed to be my last visit. 2021? 2021. Yep. Uh, that was supposed to be my last visit with a dietitian and my final weigh in. But over the holidays, I had gained so much weight and I was trying so hard to lose it. I didn't lose it in time. So I postponed the appointment. So we postponed until sometime in February. Um, and I had to practically starve myself to lose, to get back down to 305. It was awful. I remember I was eating just... Um, I eat just veggies throughout the day. I love cherry tomatoes and I eat them like candy and they're super filling. So I would just eat cherry tomatoes all day and then I'd have one meal at night, which was like chicken and veggies or something. Um, and I was steadily losing about a pound a day doing that. So the day of my weigh-in, I weighed myself on my own scale and I was like four pounds over. And I was like, oh, my God, I did all of this work and I'm not going to get it. They're going to turn me to turn me away, you know. And I get there and I weigh in and I was exactly 305. Pounds. Hmm. <laughs> Apparently, my scale was weighing four pounds heavy. <laughs> hmm. So I started crying <laughs> and he was like, are you OK? And I was like, I did it. <laughs> You know, I was just so excited. And um, and they told me everything looked good. They just had to send the information off to the doctor. Doctor had to approve it. And then they'd schedule me for surgery. And so at this point, I was like, something's going to go wrong. 
like there's no way that you're here now yeah there's no way something's gonna go wrong and i'm not gonna get it insurance isn't gonna cover it something well three weeks go by it was supposed to be two and i hear nothing so i call them and they're like oh uh we forgot to turn your paperwork in (sighs) and i was like i have waited not just so long (laughs) not just waited i mean the things that you were trying to do to lose the weight to get to stay at this place Mm -hmm. we were like this is getting almost dangerous yeah for you to do this we knew that there was light at the end of the tunnel for a better way of doing this but for right now to get to that point it was like you could pretty much starve yourself and you were having a hard time getting there it was just it was unreal yeah. It was it was kind of scary actually. I was mm-hmm. like if you don't have the surgery what happens? Yeah, because I remember if I ate more than what like you know, if I ate one meal a day um and it wasn't like chicken or something, I would actually gain weight. It wasn't yeah. that I would stay at the same weight, it was that I would actually gain 1 to 2 pounds. Well, and I remember you trying a lot of different things. You were trying small meals all day long. You were trying you know, you were veggies, trying, yeah. yeah, you were trying all kinds of different ways of doing this um, before you got to this point. And then it, at the end, it got really desperate. I'm just going to do whatever I have to do to get to that weight. But you had tried many different methods of, of uh, diets, I say, quote mm-hmm. unquote, um, that had, you know, research behind them trying to say, this is the way that you do this. And you weren't finding anything that was working for you to maintain or lose the weight. So then when we get to that very end, it was just, you know, all desperation to try Mm -hmm. and make that number so that you could stay as a candidate for bypass. Well, and it was also extremely hard because I'm hypoglycemic. Yeah. So my blood sugars would just, if I, you know, didn't have any sugar in my diet or anything like that, I would just crash. Yeah. Um, so balancing that and like, you know, intermittent, intermittent fasting or anything like that was like almost impossible because of my blood sugar. So, so you get, you get past that. They say it's time to schedule. Mm -hmm. They scheduled me for, I believe it was like six weeks out. So what I had to do from there was I started, um, four weeks out from surgery, I started a modified liquid diet. So for two weeks, I would do liquids all day and one meal a day. So I was drinking premier protein shakes, um, homemade smoothies, stuff like that. And then for dinner, I'd have like chicken and veggies and stuff like that. Um, And then at two weeks after that, I started a full liquid diet. Right. And... This was all prepping you for what it was going yep. to be like after surgery as well. Be- well, and the diet is because they have to shrink your liver um, to get it out of the way so they can do the gastric bypass. By the way, it was gastric bypass, ruin why. Um, so I had the full gastric bypass. I didn't have sleeve or lap band or anything like that. So it was a, it's a little bit more intense because it was the full thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, we get to that point. I do the full liquid diet, and the whole time I'm just like, "Ugh, this is awful." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just wanted to chew some food. That wasn't gonna be for a while. <laughs> what you didn't know. Yeah. Um, you had this. You had this huge manual, though. They call you, it the bariatric bible. 
Yes. <laughs> and it was, and you went through much of it with us, so we knew what to expect as well. And it was all the do's and don'ts, mm-hmm. what, what to expect, what complications could arise. Yep. Everything was in this binder. And you carried it everywhere with you for a while. You were just studying this thing mm-hmm. inside and out. And you had everything planned. You knew you were going to stay with us for a while because we were close to the hospital. And because there was, uh, like, my mom came out and she was going to um, help, you know, just whatever you needed during that time. Just you had support by staying at our house. And so you had everything planned. You had us on your plan. Like, this is what you're, what needs to be done each day. And we all knew what to expect because after gastric bypass, it is a very different world mm-hmm. to how food happens in your life, how water happens in your life, what hydrating yourself means, what getting nutrition means. And it's very specific. <laughs> well, and it was all stuff that no amount of studying could really prepare you for uh, because you think, you know, oh, this is going to be, you know, two weeks of liquid diet post-op just like before surgery. You know, but I mean, even the liquid diet post-op is different than the pre-op liquid diet and you can have different things and, but it's the weirdest thing because, you know, eating or drinking feels different because your stomach is so small. And so, I mean, we did all this prep, but there's just no preparing for it. You still have to just do it, do this thing. Yeah. So, so you, I, I was down there with you because they only let one person at the mm-hmm. hospital at a time with you. And so I was there for the surgery and, um, and then the post op care. Um, and you, of course, because they do this all, um, I, oh, I hate this word because I can't ever say it right. I get tongue tied laparoscopic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Um, so it's that where they fill you with the gases and mm-hmm. then, and um, I have five incisions. Mm-hmm. And um, that was so incredibly painful. Um, anybody who's ever had one of those kinds of surgeries knows exactly what that pain is. Mm-hmm. And it moves around and it shifts and it's so hard to deal with. And so you were dealing with that right off the bat, of course. And um, something that I think you weren't quite prepared for, um, that lasting as long as it did. Mm-hmm. And uh, immediately you have to be on this regiment of drinking these little it's like a shot glass size of I think it was uh, called gabapentin or something like that I don't know it was but you ha- I mean but you're we had to measure your water out make sure you were taking water in and all that because here's the tricky thing when when you can only take a couple of tablespoons two or co- ounces two ounces max. of um liquid at a time it's not like, oh, I didn't take enough, I didn't drink enough water today. Let me just have another glass. Yeah. You can't catch up. Mm-hmm. You're behind if you miss. So it's, it's like this, um, it, it, there is no catching up. You just start to go downhill really fast if you right. can't stay on it. So you're on IVs at the hospital and stuff. It, it was a weird experience in, uh, in that post-op care. Um, I think they even kept you an extra day. They did. Because um, I didn't get enough water intake. You weren't getting enough water in. Um, and the, anyway, there's a lot of details in there. Dad and I talked a little bit about some of them in the other um, thing, but it was just this uh, 
this sense that we weren't we weren't putting our finger on it at the time, mm-hmm. but putting the whole picture together. There was just this every time you had you pushed that call button and needed something from um, the nurses, it was like you were an annoyance. Yes. And this was really frustrating because the door to your room was open. We could hear them all standing out there talking about their last vacation. Mm-hmm. Your blood pressure machine is going off like crazy. It's ringing and my all heart the rate time. Monitors and all, all of, of it's ringing all the time. You're hitting your call button. Nobody's coming in, and they're standing out there talking about their vacation. And sometimes it would be like 45 minutes before someone came in. And I would go out there and say, "Guys, she's everything's going off in here. Can can you check on her? Can you at least turn it off?" Like She's trying to get your attention, and they'll be like, okay. Well, and it at was that point, amazing. not only was all of that happening, but I was in so much pain um, simply because every time they gave me medication, mm. they put it in one cocktail, all of my meds in one, and so I instantly meds, throw it up. Um, I mean, everything that was supposed to be post-op meds that you needed to take, they'd put in this little shot glass like two ounces Mm -hmm. size they'd mix everything together so what started happening is you and it had liquid tylenol in it that was super super important important. yeah so they would give you that and then you would throw it up instantly instantly and um so because of that they couldn't then give you pain meds (laughs) they couldn't give you anything they had to wait this duration which was like four hours yeah so we finally said no more cocktails these ha- we want these administered separately because this is what's happening. We can't get on top of pain because she's you can't decide how much maybe she got in and what she didn't get in. I mean, which is obvious. You yeah. don't. I, I get that, but we had to ask them to stop doing that. Well, and I had this feeling it was the liquid Tylenol because it was so sweet and syrupy that I just it. I knew it was that's what it was, and so I told them that the first time I took it. And so the next couple times, they still gave me the liquid Tylenol mixed with everything else. So when we told them no more, I was like, give me a pill Tylenol. Everything had to be crushed. I can't take any, yeah. any pills at this point um, or any NSAIDs, which is another big important thing about it. Um, so I always asked to take the pill form of Tylenol before I took anything else. That way, if I threw it up, I could still take the rest of my meds. Come to find out, I was right, because the Tylenol, liquid and pill, both tasted really bad. Um, so everything else was tasteless. So we started doing it that way, and then I stopped throwing up. Right. But it took, I mean, I think it was the next day before Yeah. Um, yeah. Before we got that worked out. Yeah. And you're not even supposed to be able to throw up after gastric bypass. No, that was like the big no, do not throw up. Mm-hmm. And from uh, the day of surgery... I don't think you stopped throwing up for seven, eight weeks. Yeah. I mean, it was just constant. Yeah. I mean, after a while, it turned into dry heaving and gagging yeah. because there was nothing in my stomach. But yeah. that'll make so, sense in a minute. <laughs> so we get, you, we get you home and we're trying to get you on a regiment mm-hmm. to manage pain. Yeah. But also do these intakes of liquid diet. Mm-hmm. and hydration. And 
I'm going to say it was probably about a week and a half to two weeks. And it wasn't like it had gotten really bad, but it was... But it was not right. It was not right. You weren't getting better. You were getting worse. And an important part in that was I was having pain in my esophagus. And they, I had mentioned this a few times to the doctors. They told me that it was from the, the breathing tubes. tubes. Yeah. Um, but I had been warned by the nurse practitioner that if I had pain in my esophagus for too long, that I needed to call because it, there was a, that might mean that there could be a stricture. So I had been warned about this. And after and what is a stricture? Explain that. A stricture is basically when the hole between either your esophagus and your stomach or your stomach and your intestines practically closes. It just shuts. So then you can't get anything through. Right. So they have to go in and dilate it with a balloon. She said it was a super easy procedure. If I have any issues, just to let them know and they'll check for it. Well, after a while of my esophagus hurting, or I thought it was my esophagus. It was actually at the base of my sternum. Um, I told them directly, I said, look, the nurse practitioner told me that this is what I need to be looking for. Um, I think this isn't, I think this might be what this is because I'm feeling what she told me. And they were like, no, it was just the tubes. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but at that point, it, it began to get more and more difficult because I started developing like major food aversions that turned into like repulsions. <laughs> yeah, it was getting kind of crazy. It was uh, for as hungry as you were, it was like a total aversion. And we would just try to get water down and it would come right back up. Like you, you just couldn't keep anything down. Well, at first the water would go down, but it would hurt. Mm. Um, it would feel tight. And like something was squeezing. That's what it felt like. Um, and so I dealt with that for a, a while and then it just got too difficult. And so then, you know, I stopped being able to get enough fluids down. So, so you called your doctor. Yeah. They said, go to the ER to get some fluids. So we went back to the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this was the... The first time we had mm -hmm. to do this. Yes. And uh, they needed to get IVs in you. What was really interesting is we were waiting in the ER waiting room for them to come and get you to get the um, IVs started. Um, there was a couple of nurses that came out. Mm. And uh, out of the ER doors looking for wheelchairs. Do you remember but they this? Were, they were running. They so running. they they run in and they're laughing and they're like, I want the, I want that wheelchair and all this stuff. And we're just like, what is going on? Cause yeah, first we, of all, why are they running? And running and laughing out of the ER. We're like, is this important or isn't it important? It was kind of strange. Yeah. And then, um, they both come out with two different wheelchairs and she goes, well, I had to use this wheelchair because of how heavy my patient is. And then the other one goes, well, I got the bariatric wheelchair. And you're sitting there. They're right in like, front of you when they say this. And I was like, I'm literally a bariatric patient. <laughs> yeah. Why would you say that? And we just sat there and we, we kind of made eye contact with some of the, in the triage nurses. Like, did this just happen? 
and they all kind of turned and put their heads down and it was it was wild we were like if you didn't need an IV so bad we would have walked out right there yeah and then when they finally get you back there um we had to kind of get stay on them to not lose track of you and um it it probably took 10 different tries to get that IV in it was unreal and it was painful it, it was, wasn't like a normal IV they were going for deep veins and it hurt yeah i was and then crying they put at us one back point into kind of this waiting room area in the waiting room for your um hydration mm-hmm. and did some blood work while we were there um you know that kind of thing but it was like this was one your your arms were just they were black and blue um the next day oh yeah and then um and we're like wow i hope we don't have to do this again hopefully this is it we'll get you over this hump and we get you back home and um you felt better because you were hydrated but you still weren't able to get anything down so something i think is important here too is after every er visit I didn't go home. I went to your house because we had to get back on track. And Dylan works until practically the middle of the night. So it's, it wasn't possible for him to watch me all the time and like help me with these things. So then when I would feel good again, I'd go back home and that's when I'd crash and burn again. It was Mm -hmm. every time I was at my house and I was by myself that I would just crash. (laughs) Well, it was like, once you start going downhill, it's almost, it was you, impossible yeah. for you to kind of hold on to it yourself. And so you needed the support to make sure, hey, you didn't take this, you didn't drink, you were losing track of whether you had or hadn't, and it mm-hmm. was it was getting complicated. And then uh, we, we had, uh, I remember getting a call at work, um, Sydney, had said that um, you ended up with some really adverse pain. It was right after that IV treatment, wasn't it? No. So that was like, I think two hospital visits later. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Because I had had a full stay in the hospital before that happened. Okay. Um, There was, I don't remember exactly, my memory's kind of shot Uh, with all of this, but I know um, there was a second time I had to go to the hospital for fluids. Um, and that was while grandma was still here. Okay. And I remember I was so bad that grandma had to help me take a shower because Mm. I couldn't stand up by myself. Yeah. That's how weak I was. Um, and Sid was out taking care of getting things cleaned up and all of that, but I could hardly walk. I was so weak. So they take me, uh, I think you took me to the hospital after that for more IVs and then what was how did well, I end up in the hospital again well, after that I know because it is a bit foggy but you had come home I think you had, hadn't been home very long from the hospital after that last visit and um and you were having so much intense abdominal pain you called to see what that was about and they they said you need to call for an ambulance and so, well but the thing is, is before that, so I stayed the weekend in the hospital. That's right. And I had critically low potassium. So this stay in the hospital was a bad one. Because so let's talk about potassium because there is a scale. Mm-hmm. And um, if you get to 2 point what? 2.9. If you get to 2.9 or below that number... 
um, you're in a critical stage where it affects your heart. You have a whole nother set of conditions that could be possible. Yeah. And what is normal? Uh, 3.7, 3.6, I think. So when you got tested for potassium. I was at a 3.0. 3.0. So you were just on the borderline. So they started giving you potassium. Yeah. Which at this time, we had had such a bad experience post-op. So I went to Sacred Heart. That's right. And they gave me a bag of potassium at Sacred Heart and I didn't even feel it. They were like, oh, this could burn a little bit, but I never felt it. Right. And so I was like, oh, okay, like it's fine. And I had severe nausea too. So they were giving me Regalin. I think that's what it's called um, for the nausea, which seemed to work, which is important for later. Um, but they called the bariatric clinic and the bariatric clinic said that because I had low potassium and I was dehydrated, I needed to be transferred back to their hospital. Which is where your surgeon had um, uh, practicing privileges, yeah. privileges to work. So they sent me back there and I end up in the exact same room that I was post-op. Oh, time out. We had a situation post-op, the very first visit, where they had given uh, that heart rate monitor was going Mm -hmm. off like crazy. Finally, we had a nurse that actually paid attention to it. And at that time, your cuff was around your forearm. Mm -hmm. And um, But it was reading high all the time. It was making us so nervous. And he comes in, he goes, I think it's time that we give her some medication to help lower her blood pressure. She's post-op, you know, all that. And I was like... So they did. Yeah. And I gave them permission because you were out of it. And, um, and then the next day still wasn't really helping. I mean, like the, the monitor's still going off and we're like, crap, you know, like we have another underlying condition here or something else has gone wrong. And so it was a different nurse and she's like, well, the cuff is in the wrong place. So she moves it up to your arm, um, to your bicep and you are completely normal. The whole machine stops going off like crazy, like it had before. So then I'm thinking, did you just have medication to lower your blood pressure when you didn't need it? A question that's a bit unknown, but mm-hmm. it's um, but it was like this was this was not good. <laughs> like yeah. um, we just had sort of this chaos that was happening up there. We weren't getting attention when you finally got it. We didn't check, you know, check all the boxes to make sure this was actually what was going on. And um, so then. When you started talking with a nutritionist, the nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner, she said she was like horrified. Yes. And so she's like, you need to file a um, report, a report on this, that this happened. So she actually filed it on my behalf. So I sent her an email with details Mm -hmm. and, um, and I just said, this is what happened, you know, sent her the email. They filed the report the day that I go back to the hospital I had received or maybe it was the day before I had received a phone call from the hospital that the report had been officially filed and was being dealt with so so then yeah you go to sacred heart instead of to the your other hospital because of that experience because of that experience and not feeling like you were getting heard or that mm-hmm. your your care was uh, being evaluated properly and so you're like I'm just going to go to a different ER and see if this is you know I can be you know, listen to differently. Yeah. So then when they had to transfer you because they were going to admit you back into that hospital. They sent me to the same floor, floor same, same room. room. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened with the, with once you got admitted into that room? So first of all, it was late at night and I was tired. And at this point I hadn't, I was starting to become malnourished. Um, 
because, and so I was just very weak and very tired. And the nurse that walks in is not a nurse that I had post-op. She's someone else. And she comes in and she goes, like the first thing she says to me, she goes, so why didn't you come to this hospital? Why did you go to Sacred Heart? And I, and I don't like conflict and I didn't know what they knew and what they didn't know. And so I just kind of was like, oh, um, I just, that's the hospital I prefer. So that's the one that I went to. And she was like, oh, okay. Cause I heard that you're a problem. That's what I was told. And I just went, what? <laughs> mm. uh, and I just kind of was speechless. I didn't yeah. really know what to say because oh my gosh, they have me flagged in my chart, apparently. And second of all, this is the attitude I'm getting when these are the people who are supposed to take care of me for the next however long. Yeah. Because I can't take care of myself. <laughs> and I just, that's when I knew that this was going to be bad. Yeah. <laughs> and it was. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, p- getting a potassium, it can be given two different ways. And one of them is orally and one of them is intravenously. But I couldn't take it orally. You couldn't because nothing would stay down. Yep. So they did it intravenously and it burns the shit out of your veins. Like literally burns them. So that's the funny thing about this though is um, it burned so, so, so bad that I barely slept. And they kept bringing ice packs. And what it feels like is like they're shooting fire up your veins. That's what it felt like. Um, my arm hurt so bad, but I was a hard stick too. So they got a, they barely got a vein. So it wasn't a good one. And so they're, they're on a, a, a crappy vein and the potassium and all of that. Um, and the whole time she's trying to get to poke me. First of all, I have a huge fear of needles, which I made her aware of. And I just said, while I get IVs, I do some breathing exercises. That's how I deal with the phobia, you know? And she was like, yeah, okay, no problem. So what I do is I breathe in to four and I breathe out to four. Um, and that's just how I do that. And I just wanted to make sure they knew that I wasn't like panicking or anything or I wasn't in pain. It's just what I, how yeah. I was taught by my therapist to handle that. So she goes to put the IV in. I start my breathing exercises and I just start breathing into four, out to four. And she's like literally yelling at me saying, it's almost in the, the, the IV is almost there. I just have to thread it. I need you to stop freaking out. And I was like, and I looked at her and I was like, I am not freaking out. I'm doing my breathing exercises. There's nothing wrong with that. And she was like, you're just, you're, you're making me nervous. You're scaring me. And then she pulls it out and she goes, I can't get it. You're freaking out too much. And, and this went on. I think she poked me four times, um, just like that. And by the end of it, she goes, I think I lost lives on that. That traumatized me more than it traumatized you. And I was like, I wasn't traumatized. I was doing breathing exercises. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so then she was very clear about do not move your arm because we cannot lose this vein it is going to suck to have to redo this we'll have to bring an ultrasound and all of that so I was like okay so I'm trying hard not to move this arm while I'm have fire shooting up my veins and it's it got to the point where it went past so the IV was near my wrist right by my hand 
And it got to the point where it was going up my arm and um, I hadn't felt it past my elbow for a while, but then it became so painful that I felt it through my bicep too. And so I'm, you know, working through this pain all night, crying on and off all night. They're telling me there's nothing they can do, all that stuff. Get to the morning. I've gone through four bags of IV potassium, which is oh, so painful. And the next nurse comes in and we decide that I'm in too much pain. So we need a new IV because I've had so much potassium going into this IV. So she calls ultrasound. Should have done this from the beginning because all they did was numbed me up, found a deeper vein. I didn't feel a thing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and we got a better vein. And while she's in there, the, the ultrasound tech, um, she gets told by the other nurse that they turned the IV potassium down on the pump and all of that. She goes, it's, it's normal right now. She was like, what was it before? So it was like, they had had the pump set at double what it was set at, at that point, um, overnight. And she goes, oh no, 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 no. You should never have potassium running at that speed. That'll mm -hmm. fry your veins. And I was like, I was what have I been telling tell you? you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, this woman was just so set on, we got to get this done as quick as possible. And I'm like, if I have to stay longer, I will. I don't want to deal with this fire in my veins. It hurts. And it's something that just went on for hours and hours and hours. It wasn't quick. So then we find out I have to do four more bags of potassium, but we're doing them slowly. So it takes the rest of the day. Um, and it went better. I had a different nurse and it was slower. It wasn't nearly as painful. However, the first vein hurt for weeks after. Yeah. But I got to a point where I was so done with my experience there, especially after that yeah. other nurse. And I was terrified I was going to get her again at night. And so the new night nurse comes in and it's not this other lady, thank God, because I probably would have cried. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I convinced them to let me take it orally since I was no longer nauseous. They had treated the nausea and all of that. And they sent me home. So I got, I was sent home. I think we left around like 11.30, 11.45 at night. And we get back to, to your house mm -hmm. and I go straight to bed. So you wake up the next morning, you go to work. And I remember waking up that morning and telling yeah, I you, talked to you. Yeah. I was like, oh, I just, I have cramps is what it felt like at first. I was like, I just have really bad cramps. And very quickly that took a turn. I think within two hours, um, yeah, I was, you just went, it, I don't even think it was that long. I don't think so either. Cause uh, I wasn't at work for very long when I got, the yeah, it had changed and it no longer felt like cramps. It was lower abdominal pain that wrapped around to my back. It was very, I could tell exactly where it was. And so I called the bariatric clinic because I, at this point was in so much pain that I started vomiting. And they had told you after the last visit, you need to always call us first before yes, you just, before go you do and, anything else. Yeah. So that's what I did. I called them because I was vomiting nonstop. So they um, call me back. The nurse does. And she tells me, um, oh, we don't, you know, that's lower abdominal. That has nothing to do with your surgery. So 
uh, either go to the hospital or call an ambulance. And at this point, it was just me and Sydney in the house. And she was doing school on her computer with Asher. And dad was doing something. He was working or something. And I looked at Sid and I called her in there and I said, I have to go to the hospital right now. Um, couldn't stop throwing up. It was constant. Yeah. And I was sobbing. I was in so much pain. I was like, I need you to call an ambulance. So she calls an ambulance and they come, they pick me up. They take me to Deaconess because that's where the nurse told me that I needed to go was to Deaconess. Um, so I go to Deaconess. And I probably shouldn't have said that. It's okay. <laughs> um, anyways, that's where we go. And uh, we're in the ER. I'm literally, like, practically screaming in pain at this point. It's gotten that bad. So they go. They run some tests. At first, I thought maybe I had a cyst on my ovary and it had burst or something like that. Um, and it was on the wrong side to be your appendix. Although yep. we weren't sure where everything was because gastric bypass yeah. reduces uh, the intestines and everything gets a little moved around, retract. Yeah. And so we weren't entirely sure what it was you were feeling. Yeah. So basically they get me on some IV medication. It was Dilaudid, which just knocked oh me gosh. out. I had that after my brain surgery. It's some powerful stuff. But it didn't do anything for the pain. The pain was the spot that it did nothing for yeah um so I was sitting there and I was so tired and sleepy that I couldn't speak um to tell them that it was still hurting you know so Sid kind of picked up on it and she starts trying to tell him you're doing all these tests and stuff well that you know this is where it, it was so stupid because we tell them that the medication's not working and they're like well I don't know what to tell you I guess we'll just give you some more and we were like, but it's not working. It's just making me tired. And they were like, oh, well. So they gave me more Dilaudid. <laughs> and we're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> and Sid's sitting there. And I can just see it in her face that she's <laughs> going to attack somebody. <laughs> like, she was so mad. And um, we have some strong women in our oh, family. Yes, we do. <laughs> and uh, they eventually, after a while, they come back in and they tell me that. Um, that it looks like I passed a kidney stone. That's what the CT showed is that it looks like I looks like I passed a kidney stone while I was in the hospital. And I remember sitting there thinking, I never went to the bathroom. When would I have passed this? Huh. If I if I passed it here at the hospital, when did this happen? Because I have been stuck in this bed, not able to move. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I was like, and when I was at home, I didn't go to the bathroom for a couple hours. So why am I still in pain? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. But I was like, okay. And then they were like, well, here's a medication that works for kidney stones. So they gave me that IV medication. And he was like, tramadol or toradol, whichever one is not an NSAID, that's what they gave me. Um, and that started to help. And so I was like, well, I just must have missed it, you know. And, um, and then she, this was so frustrating and Sydney got so mad. Um, she gives me a pill to take and I was like, oh, is it not able to be, um, given Crushed. to me an IV? Oh, oh. And she was like, no. And, and this is exactly how this conversation went. I was like, oh, okay, well I can't take pills because of my gastric bypass. And she goes, are you, are you joking? And I was like, 
no. <laughs> what do you mean? And she's like, you're how many weeks out now and you seriously can't take a pill? I was like, per doctor's orders, I can't. And she was like, I just think that's kind of ridiculous. And Sid stands up. She goes, she just told you she can't take a pill. Crush it up or do something about it because she is not taking that pill. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> so she goes, I can't crush this, but it's in little beads. Can I open it and take it out? Because it's like a capsule. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Like, then it's smaller and I can take it. She was like, well, fine then. And that's what she did. And I was like, what is with this attitude? Yeah, it was it was kind of crazy because no matter where we turned in that hospital, we were having experiences like this and and um and we kind at one point after you'd gotten home from that you just kind of went I don't think people are taking me seriously. They're not hearing me. Yeah. And um and you kept saying I'm not making this up. This is real. You even started talking to your therapist about it. And yeah. she started saying, you know, maybe we need to look, um, because the food aversions got worse. Mm -hmm. um, you still weren't able to keep anything down. And she said, you know, if they're, you know. If Refusing they, to do anything. Well, or just saying there's nothing wrong. This yeah. is supposedly normal. Then um, maybe we need to look at other options like um, more eating of a, disorder, meeting, eating yeah. disorder where it's not necessarily an eating disorder in that you chose to stop eating. As much as there's something maybe more mental that's going on here that's causing an aversion, maybe they have the resources to actually help you through this. Well, and not only that, but they deal with people who haven't eaten in long periods of time right. so they can help you get back into eating without making yourself sick. And that was a big part of this. Right. So, so she started yeah. that process for you of she was, what's it, what yeah. is it going to take to get you into this facility? It was like, a month wait before you could get a consultation with them. And we're like, this is, we can't wait a month. Like this is getting this bad point, really fast. Yeah. At this point, it was getting to the point where I was having a hard time eating at all, let alone once a day. <laughs> and I was supposed to be eating five to six times a day. So it was getting, it was starting to go downhill really fast. And I remember, um, I still had that kidney stone pain. Um, when I got back to your house for a while, and they put me on Percocet mm -hmm. um, to deal with that pain. And I was like, oh, God. <sighs> like, yeah, this is not what I need. I, I mean, but I had to do it because if I didn't take the Percocet, I would be sobbing in pain, just rocking back and forth. It was impossible to control the pain without the medication. So you guys were monitoring my Percocet very closely. Um, and, and, and everything we gave you had to be finely crushed. Yep. Had to be in some kind of liquid f form, you know, mixed or with powder. Them. Yeah. And, um, and we had to, um, you know, go down and make sure that you were on this one. Uh, we were taking turns who was up at night with you to be able to take, uh, to monitor your meds all night to make sure you didn't get behind and well, yet. and then I ran out and so or I was about to run out so I made an appointment with my primary care except I ended up seeing a different doctor because he wasn't available and this is when this was the first time that I had ever felt like I was my like my pain was being disregarded because I was an addict 
And because I went in and I said, I'm still having this pain. They're telling me it's a kidney stone. And she, first of all, says, you never had a kidney stone. There is nothing in any of these documents that says you ever had a kidney stone. And so she already started to not believe me. And we were just like, okay, first of all, I'm being treated for a kidney stone. There wasn't one. I'm still having this pain. I asked for more pain medication and I said, please don't give me a lot, just a little bit so I can just get, get through the rest of this. And she did not want to give it to me. Never specifically said it was because I was an addict, but she was definitely acting like, well, your CTs show that there's nothing wrong and all of your results came back normal. And I mean, I just was like, okay, well, something is wrong. Like I've never come in here asking for pain medication before. I'm, I mean, at this point, I'll be four years clean in November. Like, why would I want to jeopardize that? You know? And, and you've been honest all the way through that. Absolutely. I want this in my chart. I want people to know so Mm -hmm. that we're not over prescribing. So you're being vulnerable, upfront, honest, and putting your restrictions in place. And then when you have actual real pain, it's like, like it wasn't real. It's <laughs> acted like it wasn't real and, and sent you home saying this is in your head. Well, no, the bariatric clinic did that. Okay. She was, she sent me home with, I think she said four or five more pills. That's mm-hmm. all she was willing to give me. And so I was like, Okay, it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing, but we're not solving any problems either. We're not getting to why is this even happening. Yeah. So then I go to the, well, and then she tells me that I need to go to the bariatric clinic. That's who I need to talk to. After the bariatric clinic told me. To go to primary. To go to primary. So I call the bariatric clinic. I get an appointment set up. um, And let's see, was this one actually? I don't think this one. You had started back at work. No, 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 not yet. Oh, Oh, maybe I did. I think you had because it was that same week. You only worked like two or three days and then. Well, and the pain went away the next day. So we never actually picked up the new prescription of Percocet. Okay. Um, We hadn't quite run out yet. So we still had a few left. And then I think you're right. Then I, um, before I could go back to the bariatric clinic, um, I went back to work for about two and a half days. and on. That third day, halfway through the day, I called my boss and I was like, something is really wrong. At this point, I had gone eight days without a single bite of food or a single protein shake, nothing. There was no nutrition. The only thing I had had was water. Not to mention, though, prior to that, since surgery, we were lucky to get four ounces of of nutrition into you in in a day. So it wasn't like you were going from a whole lot to nothing. We hadn't been able to get past that about four ounce marker in a day, which is just, I mean. Well, and then I started actually like throwing everything up and gagging at everything. I couldn't even be in the same room with you guys if you were cooking dinner because it would make me throw up. Um, Because the smells were, I was so sensitive to smell and food. Um, It just, nothing was working. So, so I, re- I remember, though, before I think it was the, right about the time you started back because you had to get permission to go back to work. And you had a visit with a, a, one of the surgeons. Yes. And that was the time where they said, I think this is a, a mental thing for you to move 
past and to get over. There's not really anything wrong. They had been saying that to me, but he actually sat me down that time and was like, this is in your head. He goes, I mean, worst case scenario, we could do a GI test, but I really don't think you need it. I think it's in your head. And at this point I was like, okay, if that's what you think, then, then I guess I, right. I don't know what else to do, you know? And so he released me to go back to work, even though I hadn't eaten in days. And, and then you're two and a half days in and you... I start to feel faint. And yeah. I was like, I'm going to pass out. So um, Sid came over to your house because you were at home because you work from home, came mm -hmm. over to your house. And then she cleaned my kitchen for me. Yeah. And but and, but the thing that happened at that point was you had called in and said, I'm not OK. Somebody do something. Somebody do something. They sent out uh, IV specialists uh, yep. mobily to you. They, to did, my an, house. they yep. did an IV to give you fluids um, to get you hydrated. And she, when I, when she found out that I hadn't eaten in eight days, she, her jaw dropped and she goes, have you told your doctor this? And I was like, yes. She goes, what's been done? And I was like, nothing. And they, I was like, they said it's in my head. She goes, oh, it doesn't matter if it's in your head or not. You have not eaten in eight days. She goes, I'm putting in a recommendation that you go get a pick line so that you can start receiving IV nutrition. And because she technically couldn't, she wasn't allowed to do that. Right. It has you know? to be prescribed, yeah. Um, and so that's what she did. And so then that, right after that, I go to your guys' house. And the, the very next day... Um, they were supposed to follow up with you the next day. And they didn't. So I called the next morning and she goes. And this time I said, I told dad, because I was at work and I said, you've got to be there for this phone call. I yeah. Said, because somebody needs to advocate for her mm -hmm. because one, you were getting to such a really bad place. Um, but also because we needed more than one person hearing what was going on because this was getting, starting to get a little crazy. Yeah. So she says that I have a GI test scheduled. It's an x-ray. And so we went out to my, my dad. I made him come with me because I was like, first of all, I needed someone to drive because I was too weak. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, I was scared to go to sleep at night. That's how weak I was. Um, and I couldn't. Me, I, I'm afraid I won't wake up if I go to yeah, sleep. That's how that's how bad things got. Um, so we go do this GI test and we get in there and I have to drink this fluid. It was called barium. And then they take a video x-ray as the fluid goes down to see how, if it slows or anything like that. So the radiologist is in there and he's watching the screen as this is happening. The second I take a sip, I start throwing up. Um, and I didn't stop the entire test. It was, I mean, nothing actually came up. I was mostly just dry heaving, but my body was just reacting to anything being in my system. So I remember dad looked at the radiologist and he goes, this has to be real. Like, and the radiologist was like, I don't know who told her that this was in her head, but this is very real. We just don't know what it is. And so they ran some more, tested a few more x-rays and then they sent us home. And, and you got, it was so scary that night. We were, we were really 
scared. And at that point, I told your dad, I said, um, if we don't hear something by morning, say we're getting on the phone with her doctors, mm-hmm. we're telling them that we're taking her back to the ER, and they're not sending you home until they fix you. Yeah. And so, um, but when we got on the phone the next day, they had already they started had already the done process. <laughs> and uh, that was when they were putting you in. They had found um, a stricture. Um, but only the stricture is what they found. Right. And so they sent you to have a procedure done that they had talked to you about way back when. Yes. But this, so the frustrating part in this was that we called in the morning because we didn't hear anything the night before. She goes, this is what we're going to do. We've already authorized it with your insurance. You need to go to this place right now and go get fluids. Leave right now. So we were like, okay, whoa, okay. This just got really serious really fast. We go to the location to get the fluids. I get a call before we even go inside saying, you need to come to the hospital right now. We're going to give you fluids at the hospital, and then we're going to do an, endo- an endoscopy, specifically an EGI, I think it was what it was mm-hmm. called. Um, and it was that exact procedure that I had asked them about, where they stick the balloon in and they dilate it. And I was like, I called it. Yeah. I knew it. And nobody listened. Yeah. Everybody just pretended that, um, that it was in my head. The amount of times I heard it was in my head, I was like, if I hear it one more time, I'm going to lose it. So you have this procedure done and that day and the surgeon comes out and he shows us these pictures and he said um, that the opening was incredibly small, but he said that wasn't the only problem. It wasn't the only cause of this. Um, you have an incredibly large ulcer. Yeah. And it's helping to close that opening yep. as well. So you have a compounded issue. And he said, so I was only able to dilate to 12. 12 millimeters. And um, he said, but the, the next thing we have to do is get that ulcer down. It's what's uh, making this thing so bad. And then another endoscopy to, to stretch it some more. Stretch it some more. But we and couldn't said, do that till the ulcer had been yeah. fixed. And he said, you'll be in here probably once a week. Um, but it'll likely be two weeks before I see you again because we the need to get this. So large. Yeah, the ulcer's so large. And we're like, the first thing you said to me after that, you looked at me and you said, I, it wasn't in my head. It was real. Something was really wrong. It was like in that moment you had your sanity back. Yeah. Um, And this whole time you kept trusting you. You kept saying. I know my body. I know my body. I know my body. So then uh, you're coming out of the anesthesia and, you know, we're trying to get, you know, sent home because it's like an, an outpatient procedure. And you end up in this immense pain, like you're doubled over on the bed, uh, throwing up everything. Not yet, though. It was still barely there, but I knew it was the ki- I knew it was the kidney oh, oh, stone. Oh, that's pain. right. Because it was exactly the same place. It wrapped around my back and everything. So we told the nurse, "This is the pain I'm having." Last time they said they thought I was having a kidney stone, and her exact words were, "Oh, we don't do that here. It's not, it's <laughs> not our department." 
<laughs> and we just went, oh, here we go. <laughs> here we go. So we're trying to get uh, get you released because we're like, let's just get you home. Your your kidney kidney medication was or uh, kidney stone medication was at home, and we thought if we can just get home, we'll get that going because we're still under the impression that this is a kidney stone. You're passing another Mm -hmm. one, which some people had been telling us that when you have that much potassium intake, it can create this and this uh, malnutrition and all of that. So uh, we. Then you're dry heaving, and and you're like, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna throw up. Yeah. And but it was weird because before that, I had I'd been having the pain when I got home, but I was I drank water and it went down and I felt on top of the world because right. I could, I could. But treat you again. did leave in pain. Yeah. And um and I was tired of us waiting. We needed to yeah. get home. They weren't willing to deal with the pain while we were there. So I said, let's get you dressed and let's get you home. And so, so that's what we did. We started doing that and we started to walk away from the bed and they go, ladies, where are you going? Well, we've signed all our discharge papers. Uh, we're going home. And she goes, well, you can't do that without a wheelchair. And I said, then get us a wheelchair. Yeah. We are going home. And um, so we get you home. You felt on top of the world in one sense because you were actually able to drink and get something yeah, down. But I knew the pain was there. But the pain was increasing and it was really bad. So, and you had ulcer medications mm-hmm. you were, uh, we had to go get for you. And I remember the moment things changed is when you guys started making dinner. And I realized how sensitive I was to the smell. It was worse than before. And I was like, oh no. And so I went downstairs to get away from the smell and I shut the door and all of that. And then the pain hit me like a train. I just, it just, it was horrible. And we had taken the Percocet and it was, it was to be taken every four hours. And before it worked, like it worked well. By the end of the four hours, I was starting to feel a little bit of pain again. So I'd take another one. Well, this time it stopped working at two hours. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there and begging you guys to give me more medication. And in that moment, like the addict in me was just like, give me meds. I need meds now. Like, and I remember I was yelling at you guys because nobody would give me more meds because it was way too soon. And it went on like that all night. Yeah. And that's where I kind of lose my memory. Yeah. The next day, um, it just, it, it was, it was so bad. And, um, we got you to the ER. Um, I think we had, we had called because they had called, I had called your, um, on-call doctor. It was over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And, um, he said, take her down there. And I took you down there. So they were already, and they got you right in. It was really strange because we had just bitched about this on social media that we are so tired of not being heard and not, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, we were just exhausted with not being listened to. 
and we got to the ER and I'm telling you, we were gifted with the perfect nurse in there. And she's, we, they didn't even have a room for us, so you were in the hallway of the ER area. And I was basically nonverbal at this point. You were nonverbal. I had to speak for you. You could hardly say your name. Um, and uh, the nurse, at that point, I knew everything about your meds, so it was I could advocate for you. Mm-hmm. But um, I said they wanted to give you anti-nausea meds because you just kept dry heaving and dry heaving. Yeah. It, it just didn't stop. But they and wanted to give me Zofran, and Zofran and had not worked at all up nothing. to this point. So this nurse goes, and she says, I have a better idea. And she tried in kind of an old-school um, medication for nausea, and it actually worked enough that you uh, stopped dry heaving. Um, the, the ER doctor that came in gave her all of the information, and I looked at her, and I said, we are not going home like this. Do not send us home. You have to fix her. And um, I said, we've done everything that we can possibly do at home. There is nothing we can do for her except get her into more trouble. And, um, and she says, we're going to take care of her. And she came back a few minutes later, said she had talked that your on-call doctor was going to be coming up. They were not going to send you home. They were going to admit you. And they were going to... being s- a failure to thrive. Yeah. And um, they put you, that's when they started the intravenous, um, or the, um, they did a pick line with your nutrition. You were there uh, Saturday, yeah, and, um, and worked through uh, the ongoing pain, getting the ulcer down. They were giving you ulcer medication, trying to get that lowered, because they finally um, admitted at that point that the nausea in the immense abdominal pain was from the ulcer itself. It was radiating from the ulcer. Mm-hmm. And the ulcer is what was causing me to not be able to eat either and right. all of that. The ulcer was it. the source Stricture. of all of it. All of it. On top of having a stricture. Mm-hmm. So, but the ulcer was keeping you from moving forward and we couldn't keep anything down in you. So you, uh, you ended up with some really great nurses this time around who just... Every time you push that call button, I remember one of them, a day nurse you had over the weekend. I think her name was Chelsea. She just, how can I help you? Of course, I'll be right there. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you need now? How can, I mean, it was like she was just being a nurse. It was such a breath of fresh air. And it wasn't like I was an annoyance. It wasn't like she was coming in like, oh, what do you need again? Right. She was like, what happened? What can I do? How can I make this better? It was you, just you, so You had found a incredible. way to manage through the pain was by taking hot showers. And you were literally- none of the pain medication was working. And you were literally going in, taking a hot shower, coming out five or 10 minutes later, going back in, doing another one. And you were just doing this. And she kept bringing you towels. She kept, you know, everything and then when you got the pick line she would come in every time over and over again and rewrap that thing to keep it from getting wet she never Mm -hmm. told you you couldn't do it and she never um felt annoyed by it no so then you actually get the the food the nutrition going and and the game really did start to change um between the ulcer being treated and you actually getting nutrition about 2,000 calories a day was the goal Mm -hmm. and i remember the next morning the the day nurse came in and then he tells me he goes but if your pain's not under control let's get that under control and so he asked the doctor to prescribe me um a pump with dilaudid in it 
and basically every 10 minutes I press the button and they would it would administer right. Dilaudid. And once that started, I was not in pain anymore. I didn't need the hot showers. I was okay. Like, mm-hmm. and it was then that I started to like feel like I was waking up. Like it was like everything had been dark for so long. I was finally able to start looking at my phone because that was one of the things is I was just staring at the wall for days. Where I was like, do you want the TV on? He's like, no. Do you want your phone? Do you want to talk to somebody? No. And you would just stare. For days. You you just, you weren't there. It was so scary. So that morning when they gave me the pain pump is when they came in and the doctor told me that what had happened is my body had gone into severe acidosis and my kidneys were leaking acid into my bloodstream. Which could have been deadly yeah and was very close to being deadly yeah um so the nutrition helped with that and eventually um something went wrong with the pick line and it like flipped or something so they ended up having to take it out i ended up doing well i didn't crash without the nutrition and the sugars and stuff and the pain had subsided completely um and they let me go home. But it was it was a full seven days before they allowed me to go home. Yeah. And we got you home and it was like, we got you back. You were uh, bright again. You were alert. You were able to take in information and people and conversation and be a part of it. Um, You know, we were all on nerve because we also knew how quickly things could change. And so we were very cautious. It was scary to be home. Yeah. Um, It was this weird space, Kaylee, where it was scary to be home and it was scary to be at the hospital. Yeah. Nothing felt safe. Um, And I think that was the tragedy of all of this for for us watching being part of it was that um we wanted so badly to trust um the medical community and because i had had such a beautiful experience mm-hmm. um with the things that i had to have done and the surgeries and the care and all of that i felt incredibly supported and um just a completely different experience and um, you were not getting that. Not um, even a little bit. <laughs> and you were seeing a therapist in the middle of it to try and cope and handle what is going on. I'm, I, my body is telling me something and they're telling me something else. I don't know what to trust anymore. I don't know. Um, I don't know what to believe. And, you know, we started this conversation with a question. Kaylee, who are you? And after you tell a story like that, how would you answer it? I think that I am strong. Because there were some times there, I will admit, where it was like, I just wanted to give up. I was in so much pain and I was tired. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was so tired. tired. And when you get to a point where you feel like maybe it's okay if I go to sleep, that's terrifying. But I pushed through it. Yeah. And I was, was so tired, pushed through it. And I was so scared of the doctors and the nurses because of the experiences I had had. And I pushed through it. It's scary to think of because I didn't realize how close I came to actually dying. You were brave when brave was the only thing you had left. Your brave kept you alive. And you never stopped listening to you. And you kept telling us, I know my body. I know what my body is saying and there is something wrong. And I think that is one of the most beautiful things to have witnessed about you in all of this. To see you overcome stigmas around weight, around addiction, and choose you in the process. And to choose living when you had an opportunity to choose not to, yeah. to give up. You chose to live, which is the whole reason you decided to do this in the first place, which is the whole reason why you decided to quit drugs yeah. is because you were choosing to live. So where are you at today? What does living look like to you now? Well, I have... The ulcer is completely gone. And I have now been fully dilated. Mm. So I... Because you had another procedure. Yep, I to did. To do that. Um, and I can now eat soft, solid foods. Which I haven't tried much of yet. <laughs> it's a little nerve-wracking. Um, but I'm drinking lots of water. Yeah. Which is a good feeling and I'm taking my meds and I've been up walking around been playing with Asher I've been home for over a week now yeah and I mean I haven't been home for that long since April yeah <laughs> so I'm doing really well I'm still I mean not where I'm supposed to be yet like I still have calorie intake I need to work on and all of that but I'm living I'm you not are. a zombie <laughs> yeah you are living well I I'm glad we did this um I know that it isn't easy to tell a story that has um traumatic moments in it um but I also think that something in you needed to tell your story yeah and so I I'm grateful you did it with me in this I'm, space I'm glad I did it I just you know even if one person hears this and it helps them through something similar 
because you were looking (laughs) you were looking during that whole time trying to find somebody who had experienced what you had and so that you could find the answer so you could figure out what was going on and so I think that that has been part of your motivation to say somebody else well what we're starting to find out is people start going oh yeah I went through something kind of similar there's light on the other side you'll be still be glad you did this and we're like where where were those stories you needed it in the middle of it you needed that story I was posting everywhere I just wanted help I wanted a push in the right direction so I wanted to know what questions to ask and if I, I wanted to know if genuinely if I was being mistreated. And yeah. and I was. Yeah. And I think you you have uh, the confidence to be able to see that it wasn't you. It was lots of balls dropped. Yeah. And so you can move forward and say, I am capable of taking care of myself because uh-huh. I saved myself. Yes. Yeah. Well, why don't we go do some living? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna stop the storytelling for now, but we know it's not over. And we know that you're going to have more to share um, as to what this looks like more than two months out from post op. Yep. Um, and that it's it's gonna open doors for you. Yeah. So, I'm okay. excited. <laughs> well, I love you and love thank you, you for sharing. Thank you.